So our speaker tonight is Adam Begley. Um, although he currently lives in England, he was born here in Boston. He graduated from Harvard College before going on to Stanford University where he earned a doctorate degree in American literature. He worked as a book editor at the New York Observer for 12 years, and his writings have appeared in many publications, including <clears throat> excuse me, the New York Times, the Paris Review, the Guardian, the London Review of Books, among many others. He has been both a Guggenheim Fellow and a fellow at the Leon Levy Center for Biography at the CUNY Graduate Center. In 2014, his uh, biography on John Updike was published to great acclaim. It was a very popular book here at the Athenaeum, and indeed Mr. Begley spoke here at that time. Prior to that, he co-authored with the British journalist Christopher Hitchings a series of biographical sketches called Certitude, a profusely illustrated guide to blockheads and bullheads, past and present. But this evening, um, Mr. Begley will speak about um, his most recent biography, uh, The Great Nadar. It's um, a biography of the French uh, photographer, Félix Nadar. And just as a little plug for the prints and photographs department here, we do have original photographs by Nadar. So uh, should you be interested in seeing originals, please make um, an appointment in our special collections reading room. Uh, Félix Nadar was not only an extremely talented uh, photographer, but he was a very colorful and flamboyant figure. He lived an extraordinary life, and I'm sure we're all eager to hear uh, stories about this amazing individual. So please join with me in giving a very warm welcome to our speaker tonight, Adam Begley. Thank you, Katrina. Um, I'm going to talk this evening about the long, strange, and wonderful career of Gaspard Félix Tournachon, better known as Nadar. And I'm also going to show you a few of his photographs. Neither of these exercises should be painful, though it's possible some of you flinched when I came out with those foreign-sounding names. For those of you hoping to hear about the top-ranked tennis player who regularly tugs at his shorts, <laughs> Rafa Nadal, sorry. For those of you thinking you might learn more about the um, consumer activist and um, insurgent politician Ralph Nader, no politics today, or anyway, no American politics. This is all about 19th century France. No Rafas, no Ralphs. This is an introduction to Félix Tournachon and to Nadar. Why do you need to be introduced to a Frenchman, one you may never have heard of, who was born nearly 200 years ago? Because he was very much like you, and also very different, and because, for a brief while, he was a genius. Félix was born in 1820, a couple of decades after the deadly turmoil of the French Revolution, and died also in Paris in 1910, a few years before the inconceivable carnage of World War I. He was born before the invention of photography, 
before the advent of the telegraph and lived just barely to see the first airplane cross the English Channel. In other words, he lived as we do in a t during a time of tremendous and accelerating change. The hallmarks of modernity, modernity according to Dada, were photography, electricity, and aeronautics. He was intimately involved with all three. The Tournachon family were bourgeois, a long line of printers and booksellers, what we would today call publishers. Felix's father, Victor, was a romantic, free thinker who rebelled against social convention. Sadly, he was not a good businessman. And when he died, he left nothing but debts. Felix was just 17 at the time, but already in love with writing and obsessed with the idea of becoming an homme de lettres, a man of letters. I can illustrate that passion with an item from the Athenaeum archive. Felix's father had published some of the early works of Alexandre Dumas. And one of the few letters we have of young Felix, he wrote from boarding school at age 16 to his mother to ask for Dumas' address and a pretext for visiting the newly famous author. The boy's interest had been sparked when he caught a glimpse of a portrait of Dumas hanging in his schoolmaster's sitting room. Part of his excitement was the realization that a writer could be a celebrity. Felix, too, wanted to be famous. The image on the screen is from as part of the Athenaeum collection. It's a Nada portrait of Dumas made in about 1855, when Nada was busy photographing just about every famous person in Paris. The author of The Three Musketeers clearly had a fine time sitting for our hero. It looks like Dumas is barely suppressing laughter. Certainly, he's doing nothing to hide the twinkle in his eye. Meanwhile, at 17, Felix was embarking on his first career, journalist and literary hack. He found work with the small newspapers and magazines that were proliferating in Paris at the time. It was a harem scarum life. Most of these publications folded within months of their debut. But Felix plunged in fearlessly with great gusto, scribbling in the company of a motley assortment of aspiring poets and painters, most of whom, like him, were young and penniless and living in squalid attic rooms, hanging out in cafes or in benches in the um, Luxembourg gardens. It was these pals who um, gave him his nickname, which became his only nickname, his only name, and then his trademark. It came from Tournachon, which became Tournadar, and then Nadar. Nadar was the quintessential bohemian, not only because he was among the first bohemians, but also because he had a hand in shaping our whole idea of bohemianism. His pals were the very same 
hungry, garret-dwelling, would-be artists made famous by Puccini's opera La Boheme, which was itself based on Scène de la Vie de Boheme, a collection of atmospheric tales about the noble suffering of impoverished artists that became a literary sensation in the early 1850s. The author of that book was one of Felix's good friends. The characters and events were based on Felix and his gang, especially a famous party Felix threw in 1840 when he was just 20 and beginning to taste some success as a writer. So what was he like, this young bohemian? Well, here's what he looked like. That's a sketched self-portrait done when he was about 30, but it gives you an idea. Note the um, tufts of hair sprouting from his cheeks, a telltale identifying sign. He was uh, peculiarly proud of those tufts. Uh, here's another self-portrait, this time photographic. And again, there are the um, tufts of hair. From, this is from when he was a little older, maybe 34. And this is Nadal as a romantic hero, posing in every sense of the word. When he was in his early 40s, he presented to the world a self-portrait in the form of an extended verbal onslaught. I'm going to read to you an abbreviated version of that tirade. And allowing for his relentless facetiousness and his pride in perversity, it's a weirdly accurate portrait of Felix as a young bohemian. Here we go. A real daredevil, always looking for tides to swim against, braving public opinion, unreconciled to any sense of order, a dabbler laughing on one side, pinching on the other, rude to the point of calling things by their name and people too, and never having missed the opportunity to talk about rope in a house where someone has been hanged or ought to be hanged. Without moderation or restraint, exaggerated in all things, impatient in discussion, violent in speech, always on the move, and therefore stepping on everybody's toes, which those who have corns will not forgive, imprudent to the point of temerity, and reckless to the point of folly, having passed his life throwing himself out of six-floor windows just to land on his feet, a born rebel vis-a-vis -vis any yoke. Despite or because of his bold personality, Felix had hundreds and hundreds of friends. Unless you couldn't bear him, he was irresistibly charming. Here he is as a seducer, trying to charm with a look the way he often, so often charmed with his chatter. Two things you can't tell from the photos. His hair was red, and he was tall for a Frenchman of that day. A caricature by his fellow cartoonist, though it's a bit scary, gives you a sense of the impact he made when he walked into a room. 
It's a comic image, but I don't want it to leave it up too long. It might um, imprint itself on your brain. Ponder instead um, another self-portrait, very sober. As a writer, Felix was headstrong, programmatically unconventional, and long-winded, yet lively and engaging. The passage I read out just now is typical of his bouncy, energetic style. He was not a great writer, and not a hugely, hugely successful as a writer, but um, writing was a constant in his tumultuous life. When he was in his early 20s, he also started to draw. In the space of a couple of years, he developed a parallel career as a car cartoonist and illustrator, often working for the same little magazines and newspapers where his writing appeared. His early work was crude and awkward, but he improved steadily. And by the time he was 28, when France was still reeling from the February Revolution of 1848, he had become a skilled cartoonist and caricaturist. His second career eclipsed his first. The most famous of his political cartoons, La Vie Publique et Privée de Monsieur Réac, The Public and Private Life of Mr. Réac, is a series of drawings of a character who represents all the shameless opportunism and small-minded self-interest of right-wing reactionaries caught up in the shifting political currents of 1848. Mr. Rayak's head is always a big-nosed, big-eared outline without shading or contour. He is literally empty-headed and flat, two-dimensional. He is inhumanly reactionary. In this eight-panel sequence, called Nouvelle Telegraphique, Telegraphic News. Réac is further flattened. He's transformed into a jumping jack and mounted on a relay station of the optical telegraph, which is a semaphore system, semaphore system erected in France in the 18th century. The arrangement of his paper puppet limbs signals Réac's responses to the fast-paced events of um, the February Revolution. And the last two panels are particularly interesting. They show him seized by hair-raising panic at the flight of King Louis-Philippe, and so aghast at the proclamation of the Second Republic that his legs flip up behind his ears. Felix's own politics were hazy, romantic, and a bit perverse. An ardent proponent of the idea of democratic socialist republic, he was in permanent revolt against the government, even if the government was a democratic socialist republic. I admit, he wrote, that it's in my nature to be always in opposition, whether the regime governs us, and even more, alas, when we're governed by the regime of my choice. An anti-royalist radical, his ideas were informed by righteous enthusiasm for reform and ferocious indignation at the status quo. 
His most celebrated illustration, however, is not political. It's a massive lithograph he worked on for a couple of years and finally finished in 1854, age 34. The famous, well, famous in France, Panthéon Nadar. What do we have here? A long, snaking line, a cortege doubling back on itself twice. Four crowded rows of men, all caricatured with big heads and little bodies. All 250 of them are authors, novelists, poets, journalists, etc. And all are seeking admission to the pantheon of great writers. And all of them are men. Well, there's the bust of Josanne there, a female writer with a male pseudonym um, on, on a plinth at the front of the line. And towards the back, there's a little shelf crowded with the busts of female writers. Among them, uh, Gustave Flaubert's mistress, Louise Collet. The rest are men, and first in line, just to the right of Josanne's plinth, is Victor Hugo with a huge, pale forehead. Felix understood intuitively the emerging celebrity culture, the desire to be known publicly, to be visible and recognized now and in the future. Long familiar with that craving in himself, he could spot it at ease in his contemporaries. And he understood the growing appetite among the public for images of celebrities. Insofar as he had a life project, it was to make a record of the eminent figures of his day, whether in writing, in caricatures, or in photographs. He put himself in the Pantheon Nadal too, but apart from the others, he's seated by himself in the top corner there. I'll show you a better picture. Um, uh, his arms on his knees, his hands clapped, and it actually looks like he could be twiddling his thumbs. And if you look closely, you can once again spot the uh, trademark tufts of hair sprouting from his cheeks. The year he finally published the Pantheon Nadal, uh, 1854, was a crucial year in Nadal's long life. It was the year he began to take photographs, and it was the year that he married. Felix married. The arch-bohemian who described himself as a born rebel vis-a-vis -vis any yoke tied the knot. What in the world was he up to? The bride, Constantine Lefebvre, Ernestine Constantine, Constance Lefebvre, was half his age. He was 34, and she turned 18 the summer um, that they were married. The younger daughter of a family of devout Protestants, originally from Normandy, Ernestine grew up in calm, sheltered, bourgeois comfort. What she made of her notoriously bohemian husband, a whirlwind of disruptive energy, can perhaps be inferred from this striking portrait 
he made of her soon after the wedding. Um, Ernestine was not a great beauty, but you can tell from this portrait that she had plenty of character. The flared nostrils and um, slight squint could be signs of irritation or of a teasing skirmish. She could be flirting with him, pretending to be on her guard, those crossed arms, when in fact she had already willingly surrendered. My guess is that the pose is ironic, composed, compounded of love and comically exaggerated annoyance. Their marriage lasted 55 years, longevity that argues for the resilience and resourcefulness of both husband and wife. And yet, I do believe he married her for the money. She had a considerable dowry, and he had considerable debts. Even if financial considerations nudged Felix in the direction of matrimony, he quickly understood that his wife would bring him more than ready assets. Tying himself to Ernestine meant relinquishing some of his bohemian freedoms, but once wed, he embraced family life without hesitation. When their son Paul was born a year and a half after the wedding, he was instantly transformed into a doting father. Perhaps the most eloquent expression of Nadal's love for his wife is a series of photographs he took three and a half decades after the wedding day. Photos in which Ernestine, white-haired, dark-eyed, delicate, and tender, holds a sprig of violets to her lips. Three years earlier, she'd suffered a stroke, which left her partially paralyzed. And yet the pose here is graceful, serene. She is, in this intimate moment, a beautiful woman. The philosopher Roland Barthes Barthes called this portrait one of the loveliest photographs in the world. In the same breath, he called Nadal the great, world's greatest photographer. And it's easy to see what appealed to Barthes. Felix shares with us the fragile but enduring goodness he saw in his wife's face. Felix's first photographic studio was the great outdoors. I don't mean that he took pictures of flora and fauna. On the contrary, that's something he never did. But he needed good light to make his portraits, and the best available light in 1854 came from the sun. So if you wanted your portrait taken by Nadal, you went to his house at 113 Rue Saint-Lazare, crossed a ground floor reception room, which was decorated with a half dozen lush romantic paintings by his young friend Gustave Doré before stepping out into a garden courtyard. You would sit or stand in the sun in um, front of a neutral back backdrops and Felix would get to work. And his first and most important task was to make you forget about the camera, which was a bulky box perched on four rickety legs and when he ducked under the black cloth, cloth to peer through the lens, the contraption looked like a giant caped spider staring at you with a single eye, an unnerving instrument. 
Here is um, one of his earliest portraits, which happens to be one of my favorites. It was uh, taken in the spring or summer of 1854 in the garden on the Rue Saint-Lazare in strong sunlight. The subject is the caricaturist and magazine editor Charles Philippon, a hugely important figure in um, Felix's life, a demanding, inspiring boss, a stern mentor, a friend, and a father figure. Philippon's most famous gag as a caricaturist was to use his pen to transform the jowly king Louis Philippe into a pear. Whereupon the pear became a symbol for the regime, universal shorthand for satirists and enemies of the monarchy. This version is actually by Honoré Daumier after Philippon's sketch, but you get the idea. Balzac, who in 1830 helped Philippon found the satirical weekly La Caricature, where the pair first saw print, called Philippon Duke of Lithograph, Marquis of Drawing, Count of Woodcut, Baron Burlesque, Sir Caricature. Knowing that, if we look again at the Nadar portrait, the genius of the image becomes, I hope, apparent. Felix thought his friend had a likable face. He described it as open and benevolent and at the same time full of subtle mockery. In this portrait, mockery has the edge over benevolence. I would bet that mentor and protege had been sparring playfully only an instant before Felix released the shutter. Philippon radiates undeceived intelligence. He brandishes it like his cigar. Behind him, the shadow cast on the backdrop by the back bright sun is a perfect caricature, a comic echo of his profile that undercuts his dignity and at the same time reminds us of his special genius. He is Sir Caricature. I could happily spend hours showing you Nadal portraits, but I won't because we don't have time, and also because I promised to give you an overview of his long and varied career. But let's take a look at a few of his celebrated contemporaries, many of whom were his close friends. Here is a very young Gustave Doré. Um, watchful, anxiously brooding, the 21-year-old offers the camera a sullen challenge. Nadar shows us a young man on the verge. If Doré's confidence builds, the photo suggests, he'll break out with considerable force, filling with youthful energy the empty space around him. And indeed, within a decade, Doré had become the most celebrated illustrator in France. And here is Daumier. Nadal admired him immensely, and this portrait is grand and solemn, charged with reverence. All the energy is gathered around the eyes, suggesting the power of Daumier's artistic vision. He looks like my idea of a prophet. And here is Edouard Manet. 
in a portrait made in the early 60s, 1860s that is. The unsettling power of Manet's fierce gaze is pretty dramatic, but it's the fist planted, oops, sorry, the fist planted in, on the thigh there that best conveys the sheer determination of a painter unfazed by scandal and unlikely ever to compromise his artistic integrity. And here, the one you've got a glimpse of, is Felix's great friend, Baudelaire, a fellow bohemian. It was uh, taken in 1855, shortly before the publication of Les Fleurs du Mal, some of Baudelaire's finest poems from that. Reclining in an armchair, one pale hand near his cheek, Baudelaire's a dreamy character caught unawares. The pose verges on cliché. The poet is mystical seer. It's, on, it's the only Nadal portrait of Baudelaire that's in any way gentle. Later, the expression hardens. A flat or downturned mouth, always stubborn, the dark eyes glinting with defiance or anger. Or maybe he's trying to tell me enough with the pictures, get back to the story of Felix's life. Felix only took up photography because he'd convinced his feckless younger brother, Adrian, to give it a try. When he saw how quickly Adrian mastered the medium, he gave it a whirl himself. You've seen the results. Profoundly impressed, by the images Nadal produced, his friends, many of them pals from his bohemian days, paid him the handsome compliment of renaming the Rue Saint-Lazare in his honor. They spread the word that if you were an artist of any stature, the place to have your, photo your portrait made was the Rue Saint-Nadar. That is, until he decided to expand. In 1860, Six years after he first peered through the lens of a camera, he signed the lease on this place, 35 Boulevard des Capucines, on a buzzing Parisian thoroughfare. Felix added the top two floors there. And of course, his distinctive Nada signature visible on the facade. The sign was made of red glass tubing. The letters were 10 feet high, the whole trademark 50 feet long, and at night it was gaslit. A garish crimson beacon advertising the studio of the most famous photographer in France. Inside, the new establishment was extravagant on a scale unprecedented. Just one example. Um, in the huge top floor workspace, water flowed down a sheet of glass on the outside pane, and it was then piped into the studio where it cascaded onto a boulder, cooling the room on hot summer days. Voila, an indoor waterfall. Excess was a feature of Nadal's character. His friend Baudelaire wrote in his journal, Nada is the most astonishing expression of vitality. Adrian told me 
that his brother had all the vital organs in double. Sadly, the opening of the studio on the Boulevard des Capucines marks the beginning of the end of his brief period of genius as a photographer. Of course, he continued to take wonderful photographs, as he did on the day when a strikingly beautiful young actress came for a sitting. She was 20 and almost and completely unknown at the time. That within a few decades, she would be the most famous woman in the world. Her name was Sarah Bernhardt, and she made the old Nadal magic bloom again. Felix had borrowed heavily to build his palatial studio, and now he had to make serious money from his photographs. The business had to produce portraits on an industrial scale in order to clear the debt and to stay afloat, dozens per day rather than two or three. But the routine of mass production bored him. He left the day-to-day -day tasks to his manager and his many assistants. In other words, hired cameramen took most of the photos that came out of 35 Boulevard des Capucines. Felix drifted off, literally. He became obsessed with ballooning. His fourth career after writing, drawing, and photography. Here he is with Ernestine floating in the clouds, but not really. <laughs> That's a painted backdrop, and the basket is actually about a foot and a half off the floor of the studio in the Boulevard des Capucines. There is another photo taken the same day, and um, you can see uncropped, and you can see the board assistant at the edge of the frame there. Um, and that, that's the floor, and there he is hanging there. Uh, so he's looking bored, but when they weren't faked, Felix's ballooning exploits were anything but boring. The first time he went up was in 1857, and he was instantly hooked. These were, by the way, gas balloons. For some reason, every time they review my book, they mention hot air balloons. I don't think Felix ever went up in a hot air balloon. He only went up in gas balloons. Gas balloons filled with coal gas, the same gas that lit the famous Paris boulevards. Um, to inflate your balloon, you hooked yourself up to the municipal supply. Felix's fixation with flight was distinguished by an urgent interest in the problem of how to steer an untethered, lighter-than-air balloon. He decided that it couldn't be done. Even before he made his first ascent, he'd become convinced that only something heavier than air, like a bird, could navigate properly. By 19, 1863, Felix was obsessed with the idea of aerial navigation sorry, by heavier-than-air machines. He was certain that an air screw or propeller was the key. Essentially, he wanted to build a kind of helicopter. He wrote a manifesto, a prolix document full of phrases, fine phrases. I quote, we owe something more to our century of steam, electricity, and photography. We owe it 
aerial auto locomotion. He announced that aviation would erase national borders, eliminate distance, and make war impossible. He called for the end of ballooning. He wrote, the first necessity of auto locomotion is to get absolutely rid of all kinds of aerostat. But to raise money into research for aerial auto locomotion, he decided to build a gigantic balloon. Yep, a man dedicated to promoting heavier-than-air locomotion, a man calling for the abolition of all balloons, announced that he would build a gigantic one. Felix's idea was that the money raised by charging the public to witness the inflation and takeoff of a humongous balloon would fund the research for a practical motor to propel a helicopter powerful enough and light enough to allow for manned flight. So he built Le Géant, the giant. Here it is. In the place of the cramped wicker basket that served as a gondola on an ordinary balloon, Le Géant had a wicker cabin, two stories, six compartments, and room enough for 20 on the observation deck. As you can see, it looked a little bit like a gingerbread house. Here's a shot of Le Géant next to a standard-sized balloon. The idea of inflating the two side by side was a publicity coup of rare genius. This photo was taken on the day of Le Géant's second voyage. A huge crowd, tens of thousands, assembled on the Champ de Mars, where the Eiffel Tower stands today. Among those who came to watch were Emperor Napoleon III, and he was accompanied by a guest, the young king of Greece. Le Géant took off with nine passengers aboard, including Felix and Ernestine. It was her first ascent in a balloon and her last. Sixteen hours later, more than 400 miles away, Le Géant crash-landed so spectacularly that it made headlines on both sides of the Atlantic. They had been floating along at a high altitude when Felix gave the order to land as they descended by letting gas escape from the valve at the top of the balloon envelope. They realized that at ground level, the wind was blowing at gale force and that their rate of their descent was too rapid. The crew didn't have the means to make the enormous balloon rise again. They had no choice, in other words, but um, to go through with what promised to be a high-risk landing. Even in ideal circumstances, it would be difficult to land a gas balloon the size of Le Géant. There would have to be little or no wind, and the weight of the gondola would have to be in near-perfect equilibrium with the lifting power of the gas remaining in the envelope. The actual circumstances were dire. 
in this gale, there was no way to keep the huge balloon from dragging them along the ground like a demonic amusement ride. Le Géant was not equipped with a safety feature that had been designed as early as 1830 for exactly this kind of emergency, a rip panel that would peel open the envelope for fast, rapid deflation the instant the gondola touched the ground. So here's what happened. Whipped along by the wind, the partially deflated balloon dragged the gondola across the open countryside at more than 20 miles an hour, the cabin smacking into the ground, rising up again as high as 40 yards and smashing down again, the terrified passengers hanging on desperately, convinced that violent death was imminent. The balloon, Nadal described it as a crazed comet, careened onward for almost a half an hour, covering mile after mile, crossing a railway line and narrowly avoiding an oncoming train, splashing through a wide stream before clattering into a small wood. One by one, crew and passengers were thrown clear until only Nada and Ernestine remained, clinging to each other into the leather grips on the wicker railing of the upper deck. Then they too were ejected just before the stand of trees finally halted the balloon's catastrophic progress. The journey that had begun with the emperor waving the balloonists on, wishing them bon voyage, ended with their pummeled bodies strewn across the German countryside, covered with blood and dirt. All of the passengers had been injured. They were very, very lucky to be alive. Felix was still recovering from a hairline fracture of his leg when he set about writing a memoir of the voyage using this illustration as the frontispiece. He also wrote a monomaniacal polemic called Droit au vol, the right to flight, which he said to his um, pal, Victor Hugo, who in turn wrote an open letter comparing Nadal to Voltaire and Christopher Columbus. Another friend, Jules Verne, wrote, and I quote, if the art of rising up in the air and steering through it ever becomes a practical means of locomotion, posterity, if it is just, will accord Nadal a handsome part of the recognition. Verne was so impressed with Nadal that he modeled a fictional hero on him. In Verne's novel, from Earth to the Moon, a poet adventurer called Ardant, that's an anagram of Nadal, volunteers to fly to the moon in a projectile shot from a cannon. The descriptions of Ardant make it plain that um, the novelist had studied Nadal closely down to the chewed fingernails and yes, the tufts of hair sprouting from the middle of his cheek and that also made it clear that he admired him immensely. Both brave men, both generous, Nadal and Ardant share an equivocal motto, quand même, literally all the same, which sums up their insouciant charm, their cheerful persistence in the face of adversity. Here is um, Nadal's letterhead with his motto, rampant.
There were more adventures in Nadal's life. Uh, he took the first aerial photographs and also using electric lighting, the first subterranean photographs in the Paris sewers and catacombs. During the siege of Paris in 1870, he organized the world's first airmail service. He facilitated the first practical use of microfilm. And he successfully plotted the daring escape of a communard general after the fall of the Paris Commune. I'm afraid I don't have time to regale you with tales of daring do. Suffice it to say that despite his adventures, he lived to the ripe age of 90. When he died, the New York Times obituary stressed his legendary sociability, his celebrity, and his association with celebrities. The headline was, famed boulevardier dead. In closing, I'd like to say a few words about photography, the locus of Nadal's genius. Today, we produce images at a furious rate, at zero cost. Snug in the pocket of every person you meet is a smartphone, its memory stuffed with snapshots of grinning faces. Each of those images is by its nature devalued, effortlessly produced, replicated, and distributed. The images can be thrown away, deleted, without a second thought. Just tap the little trash can icon, and it's gone. Here's something Nadal wrote in 1855. That's 162 years ago. Photography is a marvelous discovery a science that engages the most elevated intellects, an art that sharpens the wits of the wisest souls, the practical application of which lies within the capacity of the shallowest imbecile. <laughs> Nada was looking for something precious and enduring whenever he took a photograph. With each portrait, he was stubbornly determined to achieve an intimate resemblance. Thanks to him, we think we know what the most celebrated 19th century Parisians looked like. We say his subjects come to life. That's an illusion, of course. But the magic of his portraits, their sincerity, their freshness, their faith in the possibility of capturing a piercingly accurate psychological likeness makes us forget our skepticism. We look past the sepia tint, past the old style hats and coats. We banish our Photoshop inspired doubts about the authenticity of photographic images. We're tempted when we see a Nada portrait to trust the spark of recognition that instant when we come face to face with a fellow being who's alive and knowable. Thank you.